0: And Heidi. And we're so glad that you're joining the Beyond the Defense podcast today. Thank you to our return listeners who came back to hear our second episode. Yay! Today, we are joined by Dr. Valerie Glassman, who recently completed her doctoral research entitled Judicialization of Student Conduct Administration and its Impact on Practitioners. Valerie earned her Doctorate of Education from East Carolina University, where she graduated last month. And we're so excited to engage her in a conversation about her research today. So thank you, Dr. Glassman, for joining us today. You are our official second episode of the podcast. Thank you as we get some of the recording of the podcast experience. Um, We would like to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and talk about your experience, both professionally and academically, and
1: why you chose this topic. Sure, sure. Well, thank you both for having me today. I'm delighted to be a part of this um, experience to be able to share uh, my budding research and hope that other people relate to it and find meaning in it. Uh, So my name is Valerie Glassman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I currently serve as the director of the clinical support division at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Nursing. And in that role, I oversee the compliance and contracts and placements for our 650 students across undergrad and graduate students, as well as our faculty. Uh, It's been a really interesting way to utilize my knowledge of database management and legal contracts and things that I learned from my 13 years Uh, in the Dean of Students Office at Duke University, where I came from previously. I worked in the Office of Student Conduct, uh, first as a Senior Program Coordinator, and then as an Assistant Dean of Students, where the majority of my work was in uh, academic integrity cases. I did some Title IX work. I did some work with student organizations, My favorite work in that particular role was working with our undergraduate conduct board, which is the body of students, faculty, and staff that hear what we might say are the most egregious cases or the ones that could potentially lead to suspension or expulsion. Uh, I left in June, 2020. So right before uh, the Title IX rules were put into place, the new Title IX rules under the Trump administration. And I left really before there was any decision-making going on about COVID. I started that role in 2007, so I was there quite a long time. And before that, I spent four years working for Hillel, the Foundation for Jewish Campus Life, first at The Ohio State University and then at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is what brought me to the area in the first place. Originally, I'm from Long Island, New York, born and bred, undergrad at Brandeis University and my master's at Indiana University. I got into this research because of my work. It was fascinating to me uh, to see how over time, The folks who did this kind of work were significantly impacted by what was happening around us, specifically my supervisor, who I have a really wonderful relationship with still. I saw him go through real personal and emotional changes as a result of many different factors that I call in my research the judicialization of this practice. And by judicialization, what I mean is to say that there's increasing legislation over the way that we navigate our work. Uh, well, Title IX is a very good example of that. Cleary Act is another example of that. Plus, all of the case law that has informed the work that we do. I also mean uh, the public scrutiny, right? So, as students turn ever more to attorneys, they put their universities and the disciplinary process in a spotlight. And that gets highlighted by the media. And our work can be um, sort of tempered through this lens of the mass media, right? They tend to dis- uh, misinterpret the work that we do. And finally, the use of students' attorneys in the disciplinary process. Most of us, when coming up through our training, either in our master's program or maybe we've gone to Gearing Institute, we've done some training with ASCA. There's really nothing that prepares us for the moment of litigation or the moment of talking to an attorney. Most of us are expecting to work with students directly. So when an attorney comes into the process, it can have a real significant impact on both the way that we interact with the student. It can impact the decisions that we make for that student And uh, overall, it sort of transformed the discipline of student conduct itself. We also uh, can be influenced by senior leadership, right? Who might have a say or a stake in a particular outcome of a case, if it's a a large student organization, if there are alumni involved, if there's a student of high profile on campus. So all of this really got me to thinking, you know, how does this impact us as human beings, right? On On a very basic level. And uh, that's where I started my research is, you know, what, what does it mean to be a student conduct practitioner in this day and age?
2: And so you took this topic of the phenomenon of judicialization uh, in student conduct and decided to conduct a mixed methods Action Research Study, essentially earning your doctorate two or three times in the process. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about your methodology and and some of the key uh, aspects of it in in your dissertation. Sure, Heidi.
1: I can't remember the day that I stumbled upon the work of Dr. Sarah Charles, but that was completely eye-opening to me. I don't remember when I was Googling. I don't remember how I got through Google Scholar. But in the early 80s and throughout the 80s, Dr. Charles, who was, I believe, a psychiatrist, he was a mental health practitioner, um, an MD, wrote a series of articles about physicians who had been litigated against or the threat of litigation. And it started to talk about sort of these physical symptoms that these physicians manifested as a result of being sued, these were clinical diagnoses. And I found that fascinating because as a practitioner myself, I related to some of these, now I'm not a diagnostician, but I could understand how somebody faced with the threat of litigation might feel sad, might feel isolated, might not want to talk about it with other people because they believe that they wouldn't understand how we might feel that litigation questions our competence in the field and in this practice, despite feeling very self-assured and confident of our skills and our training and our execution up to this point. And the reason where I went with mixed methods is because Sarah Charles had done several mixed methods studies. And I evaluated the literature over the last 40 years. There were several studies that worked on surveys alone And there were several studies that were based in qualitative methods with interviews. And I thought, well, I feel like I could do this too, right? Student conduct is decently... Size profession, we think that there's probably a student conduct professional at least one on every college campus, but it's not so big a community. And I felt that I could make a real impact in examining what I believed to be a phenomenon that was at least national, particularly in light of all of the you know American laws and legislation and case law that had impacted our work. So it was pretty easy for me to decide right away to do both a quantitative study using a survey that I developed. And then uh, follow up with questions for just a select group of participants who express interest in doing so. I, w-
2: I want to say, you know, you had this sort of action research component. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looked like for you in this work?
1: Yeah, so I use an action research model because it would give me the opportunity to implement the results as they saw coming. I'm I'm still conducting this research despite the fact that the dissertation is over. So we use action research because we can um, see the results and make immediate effect in the community that we're studying. And because I'm a part of that community, I'm not a student conduct practitioner anymore, but I'm still highly involved in ASCA. And I still believe that judicialization is having real impacts on the folks around the country who do this work. And so I can use the results from the action research, from the studies, just the data collection itself, to implement interventions that I believe are going to help people in the future. And so I started looking at, well, what did Sarah Charles do? Again, I keep going back to her. Uh, there's a number of interventions and workshops and processes and trainings that we can do to sort of alleviate these impacts or at least be prepared for what's coming. One of the things that I learned in my research is that if you know what's coming, you're not as scared of it, right? If you know it's coming down the pipeline, I don't think anybody's ever prepared for the moment where they're handed their first subpoena. I don't know that any of us are really prepared for the moment where a parent says, well, I need to call my lawyer on this because I'm not talking to you. My student is not talking to you either. We don't know how to deal with that. So I feel as though if we are better trained, if we are better prepared, and if our professional association or other sort of scholarly practitioners are able to share this information and this knowledge through training and workshops, we're gonna be better positioned to deal with the realities of the profession as it evolves over the next several years, because I don't think lawsuits and lawyers and litigation are going away. And so one of the things that came out of all of this is that um, peer support workshops seem to be uh, very well accepted and perceived by physicians. And not just physicians, there's some studies about nurses nurse practitioners, as well as other medical practitioners who aren't necessarily um, you know, seeing patients on a daily basis. But the idea of having someone to talk to about the feelings, knowing that there's something else that we're going through, we can talk with one another. Almost every one of my interview participants said, it feels so good just to talk about this with you. I know you're collecting data, but to get it off my chest, I know that you understand, Valerie. I know that you have a sense of what it is and it doesn't matter whether you're in a community college, it doesn't matter whether you're a private or a public institution, everybody seems to be going through this thing where they feel like they're isolated and they're not, right? I think it just needs to be brought to the table. And that's really what I hope to do in the future is to lay it out there and provide forums and spaces um, you know, that's how I found you and the, how I found this podcast is through a Facebook group and a Facebook post, right? There's a very, two very popular Facebook groups, Student Conduct Professionals and ASEA Women and Student Conduct where I think people feel safe asking their questions. And I think that we can be even more so intimate and vulnerable and share our sensitive information when we have small private focus groups and small discussions. And that's what I'm hoping to do in the future is work on a pilot test group to have a bunch of student conduct professionals where we can do training, not just about talking about our feelings, but really learning about risk management and managing our communication and um, also using some of the theoretical frameworks from my paper to really sort of um, navigate the events of litigation and use our own personal experiences to better manage that in the future.
0: One of the things that really you had just talked about was, you know, if you know it's coming, you can prepare. And I know when, like, when I was reviewing your findings section, there was a, a lot of documentation of Individuals weren't prepared about this. The law classes you're getting in a master's program aren't covering the depth of information or the application of information to prepare with the actual legislative weight or legal weight that working in conduct comes with. And then also, you know, looking at how we train and how our professional development is for student conduct practitioners, you know, where where are those gaps? So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean... I appreciate that we are sort of in a profession where we are well-rounded, right? We are almost getting like a liberal arts education for student affairs practitioners, for student conduct practitioners. So many of us, not all of us, some of us are social workers. Some of us come with divinity degrees. Some of us come with other masters. Most of us have masters, and that's from the CAS standards that say that folks who are practicing student conduct should have at least a master's degree, but Knowledge of the law is a fundamental expectation and a competency from the ACPA and NASPA competencies, right? Law, policy, and governance. I've just been uh, reviewing this in the last week. So they want us to have a good understanding of, you know, what is the history that has shaped why we have student conduct systems today, right? Where do these come from? and why are they so important? The competencies are also slowly bringing in equity practices as well, right? So we start to think more about how our current structures of student conduct and discipline and policies on campus may be rooted in structural oppression and hierarchy. And as we move towards more restorative practices as well, we could bro- break this down. That's a whole other dissertation that I'm going to write in a couple of years, but you know, we're expected to come with some fundamental knowledge, right? How did we get to where we are? Why do we have due process? Why do we have fundamental fairness, right? Why should we offer an appeal process? In Title IX cases, why should we offer both parties an appeal? So we're expected to come with an understanding and the advanced competencies say, you know, you should be able to contextualize that, right? I went through all the ACPA and NASPA competencies again just this week and realized There's nothing in here that says, oh, and you should also have a knowledge of what it's like to go through a lawsuit, right? There's no um, sort of emotional regulation training, if you will. And I think for me and I think for the folks who I've observed um, dealing with litigation or subpoena or attorneys is that it needs to be a fundamental part of a student conduct practitioner's onboarding you need to know what's coming, especially in the climate of your particular institution, right? If you're an elite institution, if you're at a wealthy institution, chances are that students are more likely to engage in or threaten litigation. I'm I'm making a blanket statement, um, and I don't really have a lot of literature to back that up, but I think that common understanding would have everyone agree that the more wealthy or privileged an institution is, the more wealthy or privileged its students are. Again, I realize that there are a spectrum of students on a socioeconomic spectrum who are at each institution, but I think that can be generalized. So I wanted to think about what, what are the tools that we need as practitioners that we can teach ourselves? Like what can be learned? In order for us to be able to better manage this event, right, like the impact of this adverse event, in physici- physicians' world they call it adverse events, right? Litigation is but one of them. Another adverse event for uh, a doctor could be, you know, a patient death, or you know, permanent injury, or something like that. So they're dealing with things like this too, and so. What I read in the literature and what really strikes me as as fascinating and teachable is this thing called appraisal theory. And uh, there's a very interesting pop culture, pop science book out now called Burnout um, by I think it's Nagoski and Nagoski. And um, they also talk about appraisal as sort of this skill that we can teach ourselves to be able to better manage adverse events that happen to us. And basically, in a nutshell, what appraisal theory says is, We're going to take a look at the event in front of us, right? What is happening to me right now? I'm on a podcast, okay? This is the first time I'm on a podcast. It's a little scary, okay? But I have some tools in my arsenal that's going to help me figure out how I'm going to manage or navigate the nerves and the anxiety. Well, what tools do I have in my arsenal, I'm a performer. I loved acting as a kid, right? I love getting it an up op- and making a public speech. I don't mind training. I don't mind doing workshops. That is where I feel my skill set is. So I think about the tools in my belt and I think about the event. And they also realize being on a podcast is probably not the worst thing that ever is going to happen to me. I have now um Not just do I have the hammer, but I know how to use the hammer efficiently, right? So I can pull out my public speaking skills. I can pull out my acting skills. And sort of the pattern that you and I had before this podcast was starting to be recorded made me feel more comfortable. And that's really what appraisal theory is, is thinking about what tools do I have? How have I managed similar situations in the past? And how am I going to use it to get through? Now, there is a certain point where there's a fight or flight, Right? You know, it might be the worst thing that ever happened to you. And that's a whole other defense mechanism that I'm not going to go into. I I haven't really studied that up as much. But thinking about the litigation, if you come to view litigation, if you come to view students' attorneys, if you come to view student leadership interfering in your decision making as a normal part of the student conduct practice experience, you're far more likely to be able to accept it when it happens. And it sounds so simple, but it's never been put into words like that before. And I think putting it on paper and having that conversation with previous workshop participants and my interview participants just said, that makes so much sense. Why didn't we ever think about that before? And sort of grounding it in the literature of the physicians and the doctors who are using appraisal theory in the same way really sort of solidifies it. And why? Because we are all people who care about the others that we work with. We're very sensitive, the stakes are incredibly high. For doctors and I think for student conduct practitioners, um, there's a culture of perfectionism as well. And so when you bridge this gap, I mean, we're doing very different work, but sort of the, um, the climate around what we do is actually pretty similar.
0: No, definitely. And I've I've found working in medical education, like there are so many things that the health professions do as a whole. And I'm like, why aren't we doing that in higher education or student affairs? It's it's really this huge area of networks and support mechanisms and that can be really be mined. So it's it's really exciting to see you kind of taking some of those frameworks and applying it to student conduct. And and one thing you had said was you talked about how like no one had written it down before, but it's so true because I think of when I was first starting out in the field of conduct, how you'd you'd have an experience with maybe a higher up and you'd reach out to like that mentor and you'd be like, this happened. How do I deal with it? And they're like, well, this is going to happen a lot. <laughs> and this is how you kind of start building that toolbox up. So you're right. I think that is, it. there is an opportunity in the education that we structure for incoming practitioners as well as professional development to be definitely more targeted around that, around those tools. So talk to us a little bit about your theoretical frameworks, because you had four. I, did. <laughs> um, I think we've definitely covered that Your this dissertation is an overachiever dissertation, so, which is to be applauded, not, not said starkly, definitely to be applauded. So why don't you kind of walk us through those and how you use
1: them? Sure. Sure. So I think um, I used two to really think about um, more focus on the event itself. We'll call it the adverse event, right? Because again, it's not just the lawsuit. It's just sort of the unexpected thing that you didn't think was going to happen as a student conduct administrator, right? The parrot yelling at you, something like that, right? Um, so two sort of focused on the event itself and then two focused on the person. And we already talked about appraisal theory. Appraisal theory focuses on the event and the person right like so um, one of the one of the resources calls it like the person environment interaction right so um, it's a little bit more um, holistic in nature there's another theory that I went with called Maddie's hardness hardiness theory and Maddie was another psychological researcher and Maddie said this has nothing to do with the event itself this is all, innate inside of you, but it can be taught. And that was very key to me because if it can be taught, you know, it can be learned. And then we can build up these three C's of hardiness. Hardiness is like that, that stick-to-itiveness, that resilience. And what does that mean? It means, you know, I can, I can take control of the situation. So the three C's are commitment, control, and challenge, right? And think about challenge, like, um, Stanford's challenge and support, right? You wanna be just above your comfort level, but you have the commitment and the control to be able to navigate the situation. And what Maddie said was that these three C's can be taught. And so it follows that if they can be taught, they can be learned. And one of the things that I'm thinking about moving forward is you know, what is the framework to teach the three C's to our student conduct? practitioner population, which I thought would be really interesting. Then the other two theories that I went with really focus on sort of the event itself. And they're, they're um, centered on how do we navigate these events. So the first one that I used, um, which a lot of people may be familiar with, are Kubler-Ross's Stages of Grief, right? I think a lot of people are familiar with the Five Stages of Grief. And the Five Stages of Grief were originally developed to think about how do people deal after the loss of a loved one, right? So it was really the five stages of grief following a death. And I can't remember the author right now, but one of them really started to interpret the five stages of grief as this is also what happens to physicians after they're served with a lawsuit paper. And I found that fascinating because there's all of that in there. There's anger, there's grief, there's denial, there's acceptance, all in a similar cyclical pattern to the way that you might experience um, your emotions after a death uh, of a loved one, which just really brought to light so much um, understanding of the context of like sort of the emotional state of the student conduct practitioner, because I've absolutely witnessed that in colleagues. I found that to be fascinating. And the fourth theory that I used was Kaplan's stages of crisis. And uh, this was also used in the medical literature. And what I was interested with the stages of crisis is that they're not necessarily linear, whereas Kubler-Ross's uh, stages of grief are, are more linear than the phases of crisis by Kaplan. And they also talk about searching your environment for tools to help you cope through it. And so I found all of these to be really interconnected. And after a while, my advisor and I just said, you know what, we're just going to toss all of them in because they all sort of make sense. And I was really glad that I did in the end, because I think folks relate to theory in very different ways, right? As student conduct, administrative, student affairs, we know theory, there isn't a one size fits all theory. So if you can relate to one or more of them, I think you'll also sort of um, dive into the sort of the meat of the of the practice and the lessons a little bit more. Valerie, think back
2: to when you were in the midst of data collection and data analysis. What were some of the successes you felt through that process, that time period? And then what were some of the things that were challenging to you?
1: So I will say that uh, one of the things that I I felt successful at was that people responded. They wanted to take this survey. That said to me right off the bat that there was an interest in understanding this phenomenon of judicialization, which I never actually used the word judicialization in the survey because I sort of, I didn't want to steer people in any direction. And there was no formal use of that term as it pertained to our work, right? So I kept it really open. I called it the concerns about litigation survey for student conduct professionals. And uh, I was really surprised to have over 400 partial or complete surveys. And uh, just to keep a nice round number, I I cut it off at 350, which was great. And then over half of those folks were interested in participating in interviews. Now, if I had started any later, uh, I might not have had such, such success. So I completed my interviews in January of 2020, right? And so we all know what happened in March. And um, in May, the final rule on Title IX was issued with only a hundred days to implement it. And I'm fairly certain that I would not have had as much interest or availability of folks had I been any later in executing the data collection because uh, in March, everyone on campus was called to participate in COVID transition. And then in May, almost every student conduct administrator that I know was wrapped up in adapting our Title IX rules to fit the new final rule. So I feel very lucky that I was able to do all that data collection in just a couple of months. I was surprised that there were a good handful of folks who had JDs. Uh, That was interesting to me. Uh, And then I started to think, well, I've seen more and more student conduct director or associate director positions posted that are requiring a JD these days. So it makes you think a little bit more about what the expectations are for the job. The university, the institution seems to know that you really need a good law background in this. And JDs are probably more likely to be able to face litigation a lot smoother than folks who are trained in uh, education or social work. So, that was really interesting to me. The respondents were practically two-thirds female identified and one-third identified as male. Um, There were only a handful, about 12, who identified as other. And when I ran those numbers statistic-wise against uh, the other two genders, I found that uh, the effect size was far too small to be able to make any kind of conclusions. So, that would be something interesting to explore in the future, right? So, how do people uh, beyond uh, female and male identifying experience this. Is there any different based on a gender identification? I, I don't know the answer. Uh, what I did find um, and probably not shocking was that women are f- far more impacted by judicialization overall by the impacts of, of this phenomenon than men in all realms, but uh, most deeply felt in the realm of our personal lives. One of the things that Dr. Charles did that later uh, researchers explored was not just how does this impact the work that you do in the office with the students, but how does it impact you as a person? This was something that really came out in the interviews uh, that they were so deeply moved in some way uh, by just the threat of, or the sort of heightened atmosphere that's in the workplace. There was a theme in the literature, uh, in the findings that came out, that uh, identified that there were a number of interviewees that said, "You know, at the end of the day, I can't watch Law and Order SVU anymore. I really don't want to come home and be intimate with my partner because I'm hearing about all of this traumatic stuff in the workplace, and that it's 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 really uh, is sort of um, desensitized us to sort of living fully." in our personal lives and that was that was really really interesting to me not surprised that many folks are seeing therapists and you know we're okay saying i'm seeing a therapist and a lot of it is because of the work that i do i was also really interested to see that you know a lot of folks don't believe that it's their fault that they're being litigated against That that was fascinating to me. And that connected back to the uh, literature from physicians as well. Right. It's not my fault. I I'm worried that I'm going to make a mistake, but I don't believe that I will be sued because of the mistake that I make. I believe I'm going to be sued because of somebody else's mistake. Right. So the litigation is not about um, something that I did. Litigation is an opportunity. Litigation is an opportunity, and as we talked about before, for some potentially privileged students to be able to exploit this system, right? I can't get the disciplinary outcome I want through the regular streams, so I'm going to take other action, right? Um, And that was interesting because in in the literature from doctors, they found litigation is not because I made an error with my patients right? It's because it's a, it's a monetary opportunity. And I, I just found that really interesting. I don't know that students are really monetarily motivated. I'm certain some are. But if I can't get my expulsion expunged through an appeal, well, then I have to sue and I have to find a tiny little procedural error somewhere, right? Or I have to find where there's not a comma or something like that. But that puts us as practitioners on really high alert, again, going back to that culture of perfectionism. And that's not sustainable for us in the long run, right? If we have to keep our eyes open for that all the time. So that was just a handful of things that just really fascinated me after sort of studying the results.
0: It, it, it is interesting you talk about the difference um, of how these experiences affect men versus women. Do you think that's connected to just the general feeling of how men in the field of student conduct are treated differently, as opposed to women as a whole? Do you think that's reflective of it? Or do you think this is a different phenomenon?
1: I think it, you know, goes back to gender roles, you know, from case people, you know, uh, we are expected to be nurturers. In the Nagoski book, they call it human giver syndrome, right? And they specifically call out women as human givers, right? We have to be all things to all people. When you intersect that with the giving of nurturing in the conduct conversation, it's overwhelming. We don't take care of ourselves, right? We put ourselves last or, you know, we're certainly not the first. And I I think that it's just another layering of spaces and gender and sort of all of that comes from sort of the filtering down of this work.
2: You know, it kind of takes me to my next question, which is, you know, you're you're sitting there in these interviews and you're reading your survey responses, and you're analyzing this data, and it's a lot of heavy emotional information that these folks are sharing with you, whether it's through your survey instrument or verbally, in within the space with you and it's things that you can relate to because you have like you said over a decade of experience working in this field as a researcher how do you bracket your positionality your perspectives your experiences as you're interacting with your participants and hoping to share their voices
1: Heidi, I love that word bracketing that came out in in the research as sort of, you know how do you keep yourself in, but also keep yourself out of the work. Part of me in doing the data analysis was lucky in that role because at the end of June, I had left my position as an assistant dean of students. I was in full researcher mode at that point. And so uh, I was working from home at that point, working, doing my writing, of course, My son was in day camp and uh, my husband was working from home. And so I didn't feel sort of this pressure of being in the practice at the time, at a time when most people, as we mentioned before, were at the height of sort of franticness and, and unexpectedness, right? I mean, 100 days to implement Title IX. And COVID, and of course, for our uh, Black Indigenous persons of color, our colleagues, they were dealing with so much, and they continue to right like this. This is the life, and you know, I I am out of that bracket during this time of writing. You know, I continue to try to educate myself. I continue to try to think about what it's like to be in other shoes who are still doing the work at this time. I felt the need to sort of right as though I was still serving in this role, Um, but sort of recognizing the privilege of not doing that. Certainly when I was doing the interviews, it was a semi-structured interview protocol, right? So that says, you've got these basic questions to ask, but it's okay to be human about this. It's okay to respond to your participant to let them know they're not alone in experiencing this, uh, to let them know, yeah, I've been through this too, all while trying to be somewhat objective in collecting their information and, and getting an understanding so that I can make links between the interviews.
0: You touched a little bit about findings previously. Was there anything that you found that really was unexpected to you, that really to you kind of came out of left field, maybe didn't sync with the previous research done with the medical
1: practitioners? Yeah, one of the things that shocked me was just the mere fact of bringing this to the table really seemed to lower anxiety, to put it out there as something that exists in our world, right? Everyone seemed to be feeling it. No one was naming it. And nobody is talking about, well, what do we do next, right? And we know it exists now. And um, you know, how do we use what we know in order to make the situation better? So uh, to me, that was just really eye-opening, right? Like that folks said, there's this thing that's happening to me and I couldn't put my finger on it. And here it is. Valerie, you know what this is, you know what I've been doing. I definitely would not have been able to do that if I wasn't a practitioner at one point. And certainly if I hadn't witnessed it happening to my colleagues, right? This, it's a very hard thing to watch. I also found it fascinating. This goes back to connecting to the uh, literature on physicians. This was, I want to say uh, Charles et al's 1988 study that says, if you had previously been sued, you're more likely to practice defensive medicine. If you had previously been threatened with uh, litigation or in the eyes of facing such an event, you're more likely to order extra tests. You're more likely to spend more time with the patient going over procedures. And there was very similar outcomes to student conduct administrators who had either been themselves through an event of litigation already or had even just witnessed somebody or knew somebody who had gone through a lawsuit saying, I'm going to spend extra time with this student. I'm going to go over, here's what your rights are in the process. I'm going to go over, here's what happens next. Even if it was something as minor as like a small alcohol possession violation, right? We're going to walk through the process so that I know that I've done my due diligence and explaining to you everything. So you can't come back later and say, well, she didn't tell me this. And now I'm going to hold it against her right? Folks who have been through this are also more likely to keep much more detailed notes about the conversation. I had one interview participant who said, you know, I might go to the campus gym and I might have a conversation with a student and I go back to my office and I document that conversation, right? So now everything in our world, in our realm, not just that happens in the office, is a potential lawsuit, right? You've got this heightened awareness that any interaction could be turned against you in the future. So to connect the literature from the physicians and sort of this experience from that one participant uh, was really interesting. And I think that there's far more sort of um, devil in the detail connections between our experiences and the physicians that I haven't really gone into detail in that I think future studies could definitely explore.
0: Yeah, it it was really, I think, uh, overarchingly just how they lined up those two experiences really just kind of, you know, i had said before, like reading this, your dissertation was very personal to me as someone who read the narratives and like had the moment of law and order where I'm like, yeah, they're just gonna, they just mess up the college storyline. So why am I watching? And then to have that moment of realization when you're going through and connecting them like this connects to this, this connects to this, and it's just... We have this field that has figured out a mechanism to address this. And in many ways, we are multi-focused in student conduct. So I'm not like trying to say, why haven't we kind of addressed it? But, you know, going back to that old therapy technique of name it and tame it, this is really a huge opportunity to really talk about how we're supporting our our practitioners in this field. So why don't you talk about areas that you want to continue to explore? The research is ripe. You've definitely have strong roots here if you could put that ideal world situation in, how would you like to see this research being actively applied?
1: That's that's a great question. So we talked a little bit about this. I think starting with looking at the theoretical framework, I feel like out of the four, again, you've got to identify with at least one of them. What can we teach in terms of appraisal theory? What can we teach in terms of hardiness? Um, Maddie actually has a Hardiness Institute um, I haven't had the cash to sign up for any of its trainings yet, but I feel like if we could harness some of that um, commitment, control, and challenge uh, workshops, if we could utilize some of the background from that and uh, implement it in some of our uh, sort of onboarding, you know, we have new professionals tracks at Gearing, I think that that could be helpful but I don't think it's just for new professionals, right? I mean, I was in the field 13 years and to just know that there was this thing out there that I could use to help sort of regulate me psychologically through this work was was really great to know. I would love to be able to teach that on some level or these theories in some level to um, our colleagues. I did a pre-con at ASCA in 2020 when I had just finished data collection for this survey. So I, I don't remember if I had even looked at coding the interviews yet. And again, everybody found comfort in the numbers, right? Uh, the women, it was overwhelmingly women in the workshop, but knowing that women were far more statistically, uh, significantly statistically impacted in their personal realms than men, just gave you a sense of relief. Like, I get it now, Every all the other women are feeling this too. Or the fact that, you know, having been in a lawsuit makes you more ready for the next lawsuit. Uh, I think that just sharing the data, and that's also why I was so excited for this podcast itself, was sharing the data gives you comfort because you know that you're not alone. And I think that there's a sigh of relief when you hear that this thing, like we said before, this thing is happening and I'm a part of it, but it's normal, right? We're going to normalize the fact that it's okay not to feel okay (laughs) when you're faced with uh, this, you know, any aspect of judicialization. The public scrutiny is a huge aspect of it that we haven't really covered yet is, you know, campus newspapers. They don't really get it right. You know, there's always some piece of it that's missing, usually when it deals with a particular student's disciplinary case, because we can't talk about it, right? FERPA dictates, I can't tell you about Heidi's disciplinary case. I can't even tell you if Heidi had a disciplinary case, but Heidi can go to uh, you know the Daily Planet and say, oh, you need to hear what Dean Glassman said to me in that conversation, right? I can't combat that. There's nothing I can say. The one thing that does make it better for the folks who are doing this work is having the senior level administrators on your side, right? So when this exact scenario happened to me, our Dean of Students, you know, goes back to the paper and says, look, we can't comment on individual cases, but I will tell you that I work very closely with the Office of Student Conduct. They are doing their work with integrity. They are following the process. They offer students equitable opportunities to be heard, you know, and when you have that backing, it's that reassurance that you need that sort of buffers you against the judicialization of of the practice, right? but it can be the opposite also, right? If you have somebody who's not gonna be that public spokesman for you, right? And it can't be the director of your office because they are in it also. It's gotta be someone at a high level who goes back to the media and says, we're not gonna comment on individual cases, but I think you've got it wrong. I work with these folks, they're doing it. They don't, they're not out to get anybody, right? Nobody gets pleasure, nobody gets a bonus because they expelled or suspended a student, right? that they are working in the best interest of the student, they are working in the best interest of our community, right? And I have full faith in them. So it's interesting to see how those two dynamics play out and either serve to boost your confidence and your competence, or it can really knock you down
0: no definitely definitely and and that is like the heart the hard touch point right of even in like a local or national media the institution can't defend itself because we're our hands are tied we have to say no comment i can't i can tell you how many times i've heard from people where they're like well the institution said no comment something must be wrong and i'm like right i'm like Furpa. just as an idea are you thinking about consulting with this Hopefully, trademark registrations are getting filed soon because I think you know this is a huge opportunity to really kind of make your mark.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'm like I said before, I'm I'm working with a colleague on piloting some coaching c- circles, uh, and we're going to do it virtually because he is in Virginia. We think that now is the time and place and space to sort of call together our colleagues to talk about the state of the practice and use his coaching skills and my research and working on a very small group basis. We're probably talking about eight people and thinking about how can we selectively discuss uh, what's happening, how can we offer these tools, the three C's, the appraisal theory, the risk management, the communication, and um, sort of spread the word that we acknowledge that this thing is happening and we think that we can find ways to make it better for folks because I think you know it's another hot topic in student affairs on on LinkedIn and on Facebook is the sustainability and the social justice of our work, right? Uh, there's a huge branch of social justice called organizational justice that I uh, tap into a little bit in the dissertation, which basically says, you know, you're not gonna state your job if you feel like it's unfair to you, right? There's gonna be other factors at play, like you need the money or it's stable or you're geographically bound, but you're not gonna state your job if you feel like there's procedural injustice, right? Like if something is favoring one aspect or like a colleague of yours or another, or like the students are favored over your decision-making, Another thing that uh, thinking about in terms of future research, there's tons of opportunities. So one of the things that I was talking about with another colleague, Dr. Kyle Williams in Georgia, is thinking about the concept of mattering as it pertains to student conduct administrators. We talk about mattering and belonging with students all the time, but we don't talk about mattering with student conduct practitioners. And what sort of sparked my mind after I went to one of his sessions at ASCA was that If we are told what to do as student conduct practitioners, if we are dictated by our director or senior leadership saying that person comes from a high donating family, or, you know, that student is our star basketball player, you know, so think about that as you're meeting with the student, right? If we're told what to do, then we're no longer independent decision makers. We're not valued for our our morals and our ethics. Uh, We're valued as paper pushers. And that is a sucky feeling, right? So uh, Kyle and I are gonna begin to explore, you know, what, is, what does this mean for us? Like, how do we sort of get out of that rut? How do we combat that? Which is another aspect of the judicialization in the first place, right? It's like other people get involved in our business. A second sort of pathway that I'm interested in going in is if the system itself is seen as less punitive, are we less likely to be litigated against, right? This is one of the sort of implications for future research. If we move towards far more restorative and transformative justice practices in our student discipline, where the outcomes are not suspension or expulsion as determined by mean old student conduct administrator person, but maybe it's a community decision that says Valerie's got to do 60 hours of community service. Valerie needs to face the people that she's harmed and have a good conversation about that, right? Um, David Karp's little book of restorative justice is Uh, for colleges and universities is a fantastic example of uh, the horse thief, right? Who steals this beautiful uh, sort of artistic horse from a a shop outside uh, Skidmore, I believe. And instead of being suspended for theft, the shop owner and the student have an amazing conversation about why the student felt compelled to steal the horse in the first place and the damage and the potential harm that they could have made because the horse was sort of electrically rigged in the live wire, could have harmed somebody. So all of this is to say if the process has less sort of punishment and what students perceive as punishment, right, at stake, where it's gonna be more of a conversation and and this is a big and it's not going on your disciplinary record, right? There's no permanent mark. There's less incentive for a person to want to litigate because. Know there's nothing to litigate against, right? Like it's it's not it's not gonna have a lasting impact. And the research also shows Carp and Sachs has a study, it's early. I want to say maybe like 20, 2006 or seven, might be a little bit later than that. But anyway, they have a very early study, and one of the only studies that says students can actually learn a lot from a sort of processes over the disciplinary process. So if you think about that, are students far less likely to litigate when they're not going to be expelled or suspended, right? Does that improve the relationship with the student and the conduct office? Does that also improve the public image of the student conduct office? And then as we talked about earlier, you know, just sort of having these peer support networks, right? The Facebook groups continue to grow. We continue to talk online about what's happening to us. And it's a safe space. Sometimes we have to post anonymously. There are some Folks, there who might hold it against the poster if you know their identity would come out. But that's what I'm also hoping to accomplish in these small groups, right? Where we can develop intimacy and comfort um, and privacy to the point where we can talk about real world situations and offer one another mentorship and guidance to get through the thing that's troubling us.
0: I love all of that. It's just so exciting to see where this goes in the future.
1: Oh, we're
2: coming up towards the end of our chat today. So before we ask the last question, we wanted to give you the floor to share anything else that might be on your mind that you want to be sure to share with our listeners. Yeah. What
1: I'd like to share is a nugget that uh, a colleague of mine shared with me um, in an article that he wrote for the reflections issue that I edited. Charles Schnurr, he's a, he's a director of student conduct at Delaware Valley Community College. And he said something to me that has just burned in my mind since the first time he mentioned it to me. I don't remember if he wrote it or if he said it or it was on Facebook, but he said, you know, student conduct is not who I am. I do student conduct because of what I do. And then a couple of months later, there was an article in the New York Times that sort of really hit home. And, uh, it said the same thing, right? Like what you do is not who you are. You do it because of who you are. And, uh, I sort of had this identity loss because when I left the job in 2020, I was like, okay, if I'm not doing student conduct, what am I? Who am I? The work that I do today is so different from, you know, adjudicating or, you know, having conversations with students about choices that they make. And, um, I came to see it as it's because I'm a caring person. It's because I value community. It's because I value justice that I became so ingrained in student conduct culture. And when I lost the title, I wasn't sure of who I was. But then I started to think about the blessings around me and that I had this research, right, that I feel like is going to benefit people in some way. And I have this new knowledge and ways to apply the knowledge that continues to flourish despite the fact that I'm not sitting in that seat anymore. And that's really what continues to push me daily is to know that I think people are really going to benefit just from knowing that we know that this is happening, right? It's not buried somewhere on, you know, page 50 of your onboarding manual, right? If we continue to talk about it at professional conferences, if we continue to talk about it on our Facebook groups, or we offer some real professional coaching about how to navigate this, it legitimizes it, right? Versus a phenomenon, and then as an experience that we have as human beings. So I'm just really excited to be able to transform this into something usable, right? I think one of the, going back to action research, I want it to be valuable to people, right? I want it to to make a difference to say to someone, I identify with this on some level, and and I can utilize the information here to just sort of improve my well-being, because I think well-being and and wellness is really at the heart of it all. If we're not well people, we can't practice at our best. And so uh, this is a big part of just strategically teaching ourselves the multiple dimensions of wellness, and this is just sort of one arm of that
0: wonderfully stated, wonderfully stated. So the last question that we like to end these conversations on is having successfully navigated the doctoral process, what pieces of advice or piece of advice do you have for individuals who are currently on their doctoral journey?
1: Sure. That's a great question. I I think one of the things that made me feel successful in this journey is having a real structure to the writing process and a real timeline. I think a lot of folks set out with a goal of a timeline and then of course life gets in the way we are human beings. That's what it's supposed to do. One of the things that benefited me greatly was writing chapter two first because it set the groundwork for everything else that came after that. And that was built into my program at East Carolina and I'm I'm eternally grateful for it. I started out with a completely different topic. in the summer that we started I was really interested in understanding how uh, systemic oppression and bias play into the disciplinary process, right? There's lots of literature out there about how racism uh, plays into discipline for um, K-12 students. There's not a whole lot out there. And I was certain that being at a uh, private institution in the South, that I would find some information in the data about how um, maybe students of color are written up more than uh, uh, non-students of color or that they were being expelled or or suspended or disciplined at a higher rate or more frequency than non-students of color. And the anecdotal data was not showing me that. Do I believe it exists? Absolutely. But the complaints were coming in about, you know, Dean so-and-so wasn't fair to me. In the process, or I'm going to write this appeal with the help of a lawyer, right? That there's nothing in in the in the policies that say you need a lawyer to write your appeal for you, right? And so I, I was sort of seeing this one sidedness, this public scrutiny, that aspect of judicialization. And I thought, I think there's something there, and that's sort of when I went down the physicians litigation rabbit hole and realized this this is a whole study in and of itself, and that's really what what powered me through. So once I got to that point, writing chapter two in the lit lit review first was the best thing. And one of my instructors, Dr. Heidi Puckett, was teaching us uh, how to do a a selective document review. I don't remember what it was called exactly, but it was basically an Excel spreadsheet where you had the APA citation on one side in one cell. And then in the next cell, you just had like a two-sentence summary of what this document provided you, right? And then you broke that out into sections. So for me, one was about um, case law, one was about federal legislation, one was about um, the critogenic harms, these law caused harms uh, on physicians. Uh, So that was another section. And then uh, Charles and subsequent research came into another section. So by the time I came to writing, I had the outline already done in this Excel document. So the lit review was easy peasy to write. And then came one and three. By the time you find that nugget in your lit review of the missing data, that gap in the literature, I think everything else flows from it. And the second thing is you really have to be inspired by it, right? I mean... Being able to do a dissertation in practice, being able to do action research on a topic that's going to impact, let's say, thirty five hundred people across the country, you know, feels like a really big deal to me. You know, little old me here I am, and you know, it's a small enough population that could have really, really big results. So I encourage folks who are scholarly practitioners or thinking about becoming scholarly practitioners. To look for the CPED model in your uh, dissertation, in your your doctoral program, right? The Carnegie Project on Educational Dissertations, I think it's what it's called. And you're going to find that your program is structured in such a way that you become the expert in your field right away. You have a lot to share. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with student affairs, it doesn't necessarily have to be with higher education. Um, CPED model applies like K through twenty and beyond. So I think that that is just the framework was right for me to be able to sort of insert myself into this work and jump in right away. And I guess finally expect the unexpected, right? I I didn't know in in February that I wouldn't have a job in June, uh, and I certainly didn't know that there was going to be COVID. And uh, we didn't know that the final rule was going to come out, you know, pretty close to the end of the Trump administration. So you've got to plan in some extra time here and there. But the last thing I would say is, you know, find a dissertation coach or mentor or chair that is your, you know, research soulmate. I was so so lucky, and he knows this, and I tell him every day. My advisor, Dr. Travis Lewis, at East Carolina. Um, was probably the best thing to happen to me in this whole process. He supported me through ups and downs. He supported me through research. He supported me through life changes. And there is no way that this thing would have been done in the time that it did and in the quality that it is because of my advisor. And I'm eternally grateful to him for that
0: that's really wonderful. Uh, An entire podcast episode could be done on how wonderful Dr. Lewis is, definitely. But thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. Uh, Speaking just for myself, I'm sure Heidi would agree. This has been very interesting and intriguing. And we're really both just excited to see where you go from here, because I feel like I'm going to have some type of ad appear somewhere on an ASCA email about your consulting services. And I'm excited to see that. (laughs)
2: I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been fun. We say thank you again to our listeners. And please remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast, where new episodes are released Fridays at five o'clock. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research.